Um, so we're starting um, the text form information and potentials um, from the University Mondon. Um, and it's uh, so we actually don't have the, the text itself here um, in this translation. Uh, so the, the text itself is in the individuation book. Um, so we'll get to that eventually. Uh, but we have here the summary um, and the discussion. So this was presented at a a meeting, uh, I forget, like the French Philosophical Society or something like that. Um, and uh, there was discussion of the of Simon Dolan's presentation. Um, and so this, this, the text itself is um, uh, almost like a, a summary of the individuation book, the general um, framework of that book, uh, without all the sort of concrete analyses that um, are used in the book itself. Um, and uh, uh, so here we have just a sort of a presentation of the thesis. So he, he describes it as an axiomatic or axiomatization. So it's just a, a sort of presentation of the thesis without the um, concrete analyses that um, support it in the book. Okay, so we'll, I'll start uh, the reading. Um, we can read one, one paragraph at a time or one question and answer at a time once we get to the discussion portion. Um, I don't think we need to do a whole like dramatization of uh, of the um, uh, discussion portion, um, but you know, ah. yeah, I know it's no fun. But uh, yeah, we can just read one. I think one question and answer together um, will make sense. Uh, but we'll see how it goes. Um, so I'll start reading. Um, so Mr. Gilbert Simondon, professor at the University of Poitiers, had the, proposed to develop before the members of, of the society the following arguments. The absence of a general theory of the human sciences and psychology encourages reflexive thought to seek the conditions of a possible axiomatization. In view of this work, which necessarily involves a certain amount of invention and cannot be the result of, of a pure synthesis, it is necessary to bring to light the main conceptual systems that have been used without granting privileges to the most recent. The discoveries of chemical theory in the early 19th century have taken up atomic schemes that were defined more than 20 centuries ago and have enriched them with the contribution of weight analysis. Thus, one could, in a similar way, revive the principles of indefinite dyad, archetype, form and matter, and bring them closer to the recent ex explanatory models of the psychology of form than those of cybernetics and information theory, going as far as using notions from the physical sciences, such as that of potential. We would like to show that an axiomatic sketch of the human sciences, or at least of psychology, is possible if we try to grasp together the three notions of form, information, and potential, provided we combine them and internally organize the definition of an operation, which appears when there is form, information, and potential, transductive operation. So he defines this, uh, his, his project here, as a, an axiomatization. Um, um, so I think this is, we should understand this maybe in a, a little bit of a, metaphorical sense, because um, he's, he's not setting out explicit axioms and deducing consequences from them in the way that you know Euclid does or something like that, or Spinoza, of course, uh, in philosophy. Um, what he's doing is he's setting out um, these fundamental principles. Um, he's positing these principles um, as fundamental, uh, and rather than giving an argument for these principles, he's, he's presenting the principles first and then um, showing what follows from those principles afterwards. Um, and uh, so the the idea here, um, he he's, I guess, using the analogy of uh, the atomic theory. Um, 
which uh, of course was presented in a philosophical form in ancient Greece in um, uh, Democritus and uh, uh, Epicurean uh, school. Um, they, they had a theory of, of atoms in the void and uh, of the formation of the composite bodies out of atoms. Um, but that was a, a philosophical theory. And then um, it was, you know, not really uh, widely accepted um, throughout most of the intervening centuries until in the early 19th century. Um, it's uh, revived um, and then it's made more precise and becomes a, a scientific um, theory by the use of um, what here he is called weight analysis or ponderal analysis. Um, so um, weighing very precisely the different components that go into a chemical reaction. Um, this was used to um, basically to show that the chemical reaction um, just combines the elements that were um, present at the beginning of the, the reaction. Um, and so the, there's a conservation of mass from the beginning through the, the whole operation. Um, so, so Simon Don was taking this as a sort of model for how we can revive um, notions from ancient philosophy or, um, uh, you know, ancient notions in general. We can take them and revive them by combining them with contemporary scientific developments. Uh, and we can introduce new, new schemas of thought uh, in this way or revive these schemas of thought. And so he's proposing to take these notions of uh, form, uh, uh, the, the, the indefinite dyad archetype form and matter. So these are all related to the, the concept of, of form, as we'll see in the next paragraph. Um, and then uh, combine those with the modern uh, notions of information uh, drawn from um, in information theory uh, and cybernetics and then the notion of potential drawn from physics, um, and and then to sort of join all of these three notions together is the, the new notion that he's presenting here of a transductive operation. So that's the, the sort of big picture of what's going on in, uh, in this paragraph. Um, what is the psychology of form that he mentions? Right, uh, yeah, so this is what's called uh, Gestalt psychology. Um, so this was uh, a school that um, arose right at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Um, um, so one of the, it, it basically arose in opposition to the predominant um, associationist uh, tradition within psychology. So the tradition that wanted to um, show how mental life is made up out of elements, uh, uh, you know, atoms, psychological atoms, uh, like maybe color sensations or, or something like that, that would become associated together through, um, through uh, you know, different psychological principles of association, like uh, contiguity or, or causality and so on. Um, and so it would try to build up uh, mental life uh, out of these psychological atoms that would combine together um, uh, so the Gestalt school opposed that associationist tradition, um, and they argued that there are um, sort of um, uh, inherent forms within psychological life or within the mind. Um, so in the, the perception of a melody, for example, um, there's a, a perception of the form, the, the whole structure of the melody, um, which is not, uh, which is prior to the perception of, of any particular note, 
Um, and so you can, um, for example, if you change one note in the melody, you um, you change the whole melody, the whole structure of the melody. Um, whereas if you take the whole melody uh, up an octave or down an octave, you um, you preserve the structure of the melody um, um, in, a, in a way that isn't preserved when you just change one note. Um, and uh, like a, another example is in visual perception. Um, they argued that there was uh, visual perception always involved a, a form and background distinction um, or figure and background. Um, so there's uh, um, th there's several famous uh, optical illusions that they um, first presented that uh, involve, for example, uh, there's one with a, a circle with a, what looks like a white triangle in front of it, um, but there's really there's no actual triangle drawn on the page. It's just um, the sort of cut out outlines of the circle um, that that we. Um, interpreted as a, uh, a white triangle on top of a circle. Um, uh, and so this, this is a, the figure ground structure is a, a form that, um, that our perception uh, imposes on, on the world or on, uh, on our sense impressions or however you want to uh, um, present that. Okay, thank you for that explanation. Yeah, so Simon Dong is going to, um, so, so Gestalt psychology or psychology of form is one of the, the sort of key um, reference points for Simon Dong. Um, and he, he takes this to be a, a reactualization of the, the ancient Greek notion of, of form. Um, and, uh, um, you know, that we find in Plato and Aristotle in different forms or in different ways. Um, and, uh, yeah, so he, he, takes this as a, an essential reference point. Oh yeah, and uh, Leith Mason just posted into the chat, the uh, live discussion chat channel, one of the, the famous um, optical illusion of the duck rabbit. Um, so you can either, you can see the same figure as either a duck or a rabbit, depending on how you organize it. Um, I'm not sure if that was a, one of the ones that the Gestalt psychologists um, uh, had proposed. There's one that's called the Kanisa Triangle. Uh, let me see if I can find it. I don't see the rabbit. So the rabbit is uh, sideways, like the the ears are are the duck's bill, and uh, oh, okay, yeah, now I do, now I do. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <clears throat> I'm always bad at these things. Oh yeah, that's the one. Yeah, so uh, the Kanisa triangle. Um, yeah, so you see, uh, um, there's a. It looks like a white triangle um, over top of the the black circles and the um, the uh, black outline triangle underneath it, um, but there's really no white triangle drawn on the paper. It's just uh, it's the the outlines are are sort of um, um, sketched by the uh, the cutout on on the remaining shapes. Okay, I think we can go on to the next paragraph. If someone else would like to read, I'll read. The notion of form in all the doctrines in which it appears plays a constant functional role, that of a structural germ possessing a certain directing and organizing power. It supposes a basic duality between two types of reality, the reality that receives the form and the one that is the form or conceals the form. This privilege of form resides in its unity, its totality, its essential coherence with itself. Even in gestalt psychology form, 
which is no longer anterior to any matter, nevertheless retains its superiority of ganz height, and there is a hierarchy of forms, good form, better form, imminent or transcendent prior to the taking of form or contemporary with this operation, it retains its privilege of superiority over the matter or the elements. What is the foundation of any archetypal, halomorphic or gestaltist theory of form is the qualitative, functional, and hierarchical asymmetry of form and what takes shape. Yeah, uh, take shape there should be maybe take, takes form. It's it, the word in French is form. So that's, uh, yeah, I, I would just translate it as form. Um, and then also the word Ganzheit, that's, so it's a German term for wholeness. Um, so that's one of the uh, one of the properties of the form in Gestalt psychology is that it, it has a, a wholeness to it. Um, it's uh, it's not composed out of elements that um, are combined together. It's uh, the whole is prior to the the elements, um, and uh, yeah. So that's why we see um, the triangle rather than seeing um, uh, circles with little pie slices cut out of them or something like that. And uh, so he, go, he goes through this very quickly here because this is just a summary. Um, but he mentions um, sort of three different uh, um, three different ways in which we can, uh, or, or three different theories of the form. Um, so are the archetypal, hylomorphic, or gestaltist theory of form. Uh, so the three different theories of, of form. So the archetypal refers to Plato. Um, so this is the theory of the form as the archetype from which um, particular entities are copied. Um, and you know, Plato uses different um, images for this in different dialogues. Um, but um, the, the image that Simondon retains is um, the one of the, uh, the, coin, uh, the, the coin being stamped. Um, so you have uh, um, this is in the, the form information potential text itself. Um, it's not developed here so far, but um, uh, so the images of, uh, um, you have an uh, engraving uh, carved, you know, engraved into a, a metal piece and you use it to stamp coins. Um, so all the coins will resemble each other because they're all um, derived from the, the one archetype, the, uh, the, the stamp. Um, so this is the, the platonic theory of the form, um, and the hylomorphic theory is Aristotle's theory. Um, so this is a, a theory in which the form is um, inherent in um, the, the entities themselves, the, the sunolan, the, the whole entity. Um, and uh, it's, so it, the form is... Um, in this theory is related to the becoming of the entity. So the form is that towards which the entity um, becomes. So the way, in the way that um, an acorn grows into a tree, um, so the, it, it has this form of the tree uh, within it. Um, uh, and then the Gestaltist theory of form is the one that we've uh, discussed um, here uh, with the, the psychological um, properties that uh, um, the the form uh precedes the elements in in psychical life and uh and so the basic concept of uh the the or the basic property of a a, a concept of form that simondon wants to retain is this idea of um what he calls the 
uh, asymmetry of form and what takes on the form. So there's uh, something that that imposes or that generates the form, and there's something that undergoes the process of transformation that takes on the form, um, and and there's a, an asymmetry between the two. Um, so this is uh, sort of the the key takeaway of this paragraph. Okay, we can go on to the next paragraph. If someone else would like to read, I can go. Uh, two, the notion of information is, on the contrary, the keystone of any doctrine of reciprocity, equivalence, or even the reversibility of the active term and the passive term in the exchange. The transmitter and the receiver are the two homogeneous ends of a line. Um, so, sorry, starting again. Uh, the transmitter and the receiver are the true two homogeneous ends of a line in which the information is transmitted with maximum safety when the operation is reversible. It is not only a matter of control, but also the condition of intelligibility itself, which implies reversibility and univocity. Coding and decoding are carried out according to conventions that apply to both the transmitter and the receiver. Only a content and not a, cold, not a code can be transmitted. Any type of explanation involving symmetry can be associated with information theory. The homogeneity of the elements that combine and take shape through an additive or juxtaposition process more generally, quantitative phenomena of mass, population, based on the theory of randomness, assuming the symmetry of the elements and their arbitrary nature, can be studied in information theory. So he's here referring to um, information theory as developed by um, uh, Shannon and, and Weaver um, and uh, um, Norbert Wiener as well. Um, and, um, and so the one of the basic... Um, the basic idea of information theory in this form is um, a calculation of probability um, of messages. Um, so um, you have a, a receiver and a, a transmitter, and um, the, the transmitter has certain possible states. Um, you know, the most simple would be you know a one and a zero, or um, heads or tails, or something like that, um, and uh, um, the, uh, the, the message transmits the state of the transmitter, um, and then the receiver, um, and it, the message uh, transmits it in the form of a code. Um, so it, it has some sort of signal, um, whether it's a change of voltage or whatever, um, in the, in a, a telegraph cable or a change of frequency in uh, radio waves or whatever, um, uh, some sort of signal uh, codes the, the different possible states of the transmitter and then the receiver um, uh, receives the information um, based on what those possible states are and the, you can calculate the amount of information based on uh, the probabilities of the different states of the transmitter um, given a certain message because um, there's always noise in the channel so there's, there's always a certain amount of uncertainty. Um, so this is the sort of, um, uh, yeah, so that's a, there's a nice diagram here that Leif Mason has, um, has uh, um, uh, posted in the chat. Um, so you have uh, some sort of information source, whether it's, um, you know, it, it can be something random or, or some uh, um, information source that's already been uh, prepared in some way. Uh, then you have a transmitter which transmits a signal across a channel. Um, and then there's always noise in the channel, um, and then the receiver 
uh, has the uh, receives the signal through the channel, um, and then he has to decode the um, the um, uh, the signal. Sorry, has to decode the message from the signal. I have some uh, information theory journals, and uh, it's uh, it's very difficult to understand what's going on. I mean, it's all about like signal to noise ratio and stuff in every case, but the mathematics is far more complicated than all of the mathematics journals that I've looked at. <laughs> at least from, I mean, maybe the mathematics, they're maybe not mathematically more complicated, but the uh, symbolically more complicated, I guess, at least in information theory papers. I posted a book uh, a while back, I guess last year now, called uh, by Donald McKay, called uh, Mechanism and Meaning, I think it's called, something, something like that. I'm going to repost it. it was, it's a really good sort of um, series of lectures that kind of build off one another, describing the sort of broader import of information theory in a way that's got some useful metaphors in it. I'll post it in. Yeah, and so this uh, information theory um, develops, I think, in uh, the, the 40s and 50s, um, sort of laid the foundation for telecommunications uh, and um, um, uh, a lot of uh, computer networking and, and, you know, exactly what we're doing right now, of course, is, is um, made possible by information theory. So this is a, obviously a, a very significant um, technological uh, development. Um, but there's also, uh, Simon Don wants to draw the theoretical um, consequences of this uh, uh, notion of information um, and uh, one one of those consequences is um, uh, by contrast to the the notion of form um, that he presented in the, in the last paragraph uh, so the notion of form is a, an asymmetrical notion um, on the other hand the notion of information is a symmetrical one um, uh, in the sense that the receiver and the emitter uh, yeah the receiver and the emitter of a message, um, uh, can be reversed uh, insofar as they they uh, operate on the same code. So the code is um, common to the the receiver and the transmitter, um, and uh, because of that, you can always reverse the the receiver and transmitter. Here I'm uploading. I uploaded. I, um, I, this is an article in the most most recent like information theory journal, at, at the big one at. Uh, it uh, can give you a kind of an idea of like how, how, how much like formal symbolic language is used to talk about these types of codes in, in communication. Wow, this looks so convoluted. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fun stuff. Um, the, the sort of basic principles are, are, are relatively simple, um, but it, uh, it quickly becomes complicated once you start applying it to uh, um, practical cases. And of course, the more um, complexity, so, so like the example I was giving was just something like a flip of a coin uh, being the, the message to be transmitted. Um, and so you would have a very simple code of a, you know, on or off. Um, um, but the more complex the message is, so if you want to transmit um, images or video or something like that, then you need a much more complex code. And so you would have uh, um, the actual um, uh, information the calculation of the information transmitted would be much more complex as well. Uh, don't don't look too closely at the paper if you uh, like have some issues with that, especially Aon. Uh, yeah, be careful looking at that last thing I linked because it might 
it might make you like hate the world or something. Like a lot of people have this experience. They just look and they're like, no, it's just like this, like um, the information just like builds up and like buries, buries them under it, you know, information theoretic constraints, I guess. But yeah, no, this, this is why it's crucial for um, Simone, Simone Dunn to be, um, to be talked about because the, the current like dialogue about this is so, so, um, delegated to technical expertise <clears throat> when that's not entirely necessary. Like we don't have to think about information theory in a way that we would have to dedicate our lives to understanding mathematical principles behind them just to have a bearing in what's going on. So I think that this is a, this is one of the main reasons why it's, it's really good to, to, to look into Smundin because he's not uh, explaining information theory in uh, just purely mathematical terms, you know, it's it's much more ecumenical in that in that aspect, I guess. Yeah, I think he um, he takes from information theory what the sort of conceptual core of it is, or or what uh, conceptual implications it has, um, rather than um, you know sort of um, uh, staying with the formalism of the theory itself. Um, he he sort of draws out its implications for us. Okay, now we can read the next paragraph then, if someone else would like to volunteer. I can do this one. Transductive operation would be the propagation of a structure gradually gaining space from a structural germ as a supersaturated solution crystallizes from a crystalline germ. This implies that the field is in a metastable equilibrium, i.e. conceals a potential energy that can only be released by the emergence of a new structure, which is like solving the problem. Consequently, the information is not reversible. It is the organizing direction emanating at a short distance from the structural germ and reaching the field. The germ is the sender, the field is the receiver, and the boundary between sender and receiver moves continuously when the shape occurs as it progresses. One could say that the boundary between the structural germ and the structural metastable field is a modulator. It is the energy of metastability of the field, therefore of matter, that allows the structure, therefore the form, to advance. The potentials reside in matter, and the boundary between form and matter is an amplifier relay. So a kind of uh, empty modular domain for that... Um that um, the the form matter distinction, I guess, kind of the the form is, in this case, the structure, the form. You know, but I guess the the key is that the the formlessness is it is modular and metastable, right? Modular. Yeah, there's um there's a, a lot of notions sort of packed into this paragraph. Um, uh, so the maybe to start with would be the, the notion of metastability. Um, that's probably the, the first one to, uh, to clarify. Um, so the metastability, um, um, I posted a, a diagram ages ago when we were talking about this, but um, one, I guess, simple model of what this looks like is um, um, if you have um, a ball uh, at the top of a hill, um, uh, so it, the the ball might not um, it, it is in a stable state in some sense in the sense that it's not uh, it's not moving um, 
but it's also it's a it's a metastable state because it has potential energy in that um, uh, if you just give the ball a slight push, it'll roll down the hill. Um, and uh, uh, so a metastable state is a state that um, in which there is potential energy um, so that uh, transformation or work can be carried out. Um, but it's it's uh, it's a sort of provisionally stable state that contains this potential energy. Um, and so uh, a transductive operation, as, as Simon Dong uh, outlined it here, is um, an operation. Um, yes, uh, and Berke has just posted a, um, uh, an image in the, the chat there, um, which shows the, the ball um, in a, a metastable state that can, um, it can roll down this incline, um, but it, um, it, uh, it's, it's stable for now. It's a provisionally stable state, but it can roll down this incline um, if it's given a, a slight push. Um, so this is a, a sort of uh, the, the most simple um, image of a, a metastable state, but you can have um, other forms of potential energy rather than just um, gravity. Um, but the, so the notion of a transductive operation is, uh, so it starts from a, a field um, of some kind, whether it's a magnetic or, or gravitational or, or whatever other form, form of field, um, which contains a potential energy. Um, and uh, then the operation uh, proceeds from some sort of germ, uh, uh, like in the crystallization uh, example. Um, so crystals will form in a supersaturated solution. Um, out of a, a germ crystal. So if you have a crystal, um, a tiny fragment of a crystal, and you uh, insert it into a supersaturated solution, then the solution will start to crystallize around the, uh, the, the germ crystal that you introduce into it. Um, so the transductive operation is the operation of the progressive uh, taking on of structure within this field. Um, so the 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 structure is not um, uh, the structure arises out of the the field through this transductive operation, and the the limit between the the germ and the field um, is what he calls the the modulator. Um, so it's uh, um, it's uh, the so the term modulator is drawn from um, electronics, um, in which you have um, you can have a, a signal. Um, and then a, a modulating signal. That, so it's a, a secondary signal that um, that transforms the first signal. Um, so you can have, uh, like in radio, you have amplitude modulation for AM radio and frequency modulation for uh, FM radio. Um, but you have so you have a, a sort of a base signal and then uh, some sort of modulating signal that modifies the base signal. Um, and so. Uh, Simon Dong is representing the uh, the transformation at the limit of the structural germ as as uh, a kind of modulation. Also, um, if y'all are interested in the phenomenological tradition, there's um, a relevant sense of multi-stability in which um, the, um, the the idea of perception is kind of tasked with this uh, this multi-stable relation. Let me see the exact characterization. I can get a I have a quote on hand, actually. Because perceptual objects are contexted and because these contexts change with it, with it, the object role, we may see that all perceptual objects are multi-stable. 
they may assume variations within variant contexts but are invariantly located in some ratio with the field or context. And that's a that's a quote from like I guess someone who's considered post a post phenomenologist, but um, um, somebody who's interested in kind of looking at like the the kind of meta stability kind of uh, explanation explanatory model in the terms of uh, phenomenal phenomenological explanation, um, and uh, you can kind of see the the uh, the optical illusion and the marble the marble rolling. Uh, situation uh, in a similar sense. Um, if you can think of our perception as like active, if we can think of our perception as something which can manifest potentials, right? Um, and I think if we if we have a certain kind of ep epistemic framework, then we can kind of uh, tie in the, the multi-stability of like the information theoretic world with the phenomenological domain. Yeah, and in the um, the paper itself that we don't have here, but we'll eventually get to, um, it, it, he um, he refers to the work of uh, Kurt Levin, who uh, was a Gestalt psychologist who um, developed the idea um, of uh, psychological fields. Um, so the idea that the experienced world is structured in a in a topological way. So there's like a, a forward field and uh, um, um, I don't, actually don't know too much about it, but um, there's there's a, a sort of structure. The, the experienced world is structured in terms of fields um, and uh, um, uh, that have different uh, potentials uh, sort of inherent in them. And, uh, and so, yeah, so this same model of metastability and the transductive operation applies in uh, uh, both in physical um, transformations like the crystal um, and also in psychological transformations uh, like the process of invention um, uh, that he analyzes in some of his lecture courses. That's actually who I was quoting, uh, Leith, sorry to interrupt. But... Oh, yeah, that's fine. Um, yeah, uh, I, I thought that it might be who you were referring to. Um, yeah, we can go on to the next paragraph, uh, the last one before we get to the discussion itself. I can go. Is it the one starting with mass phenomena? Yes, that's the one. Okay. Uh, mass phenomena are not to be neglected in any way, but they must be considered as conditions for the accumulation of potential energy in a field and strictly speaking, conditions for the creation of the field as a possible field of transductivity, which means a relative homogeneity and a part-by-part -part distribution of the energetic potentials. The form-matter relation is then transposed into a transductive relation and progress of the structuring structured couple through an active limit, which is the passage of information. So uh, mass phenomena here are what he uh, referred to in the uh, the paragraph um, on information theory as um, um, having to do with chance or probability. Um, and uh, Simondon um, suggests here that uh, this is a sort of uh, secondary um, importance, um, not not um, rejected uh, in a sense, but. Um, um, they're they're secondary in that the what is taken into account in the theory is the uh, the potential energy in the field, 
and um, um, the uh, uh, mass phenomena or these chance uh, or uh, probabilistic um, operations are what create the conditions in the field. And so again, this is all very um, compressed because it's just, just a summary of the article um, that or the paper that he uh, presented. Um, but uh, in the paper itself, Simon Don argues for um, uh, the need for um, a uh, something like a, a tension of information, as he calls it. Um, so it's not just information wouldn't just have um, the a single quantity um, the, the quantity of information transmitted, but there would be what he calls this tension of information, um, which is what is characteristic of the good form in the Gestalt psychology sense. Um, it has it's something that has a high tension of information, and and this um, tension of information is uh, characterized by its ability to um, to structure an environment. Um, so it's uh, something that it, something has high tension of information insofar as it is capable of uh, structuring uh, a field. So information theoretic could be considered as like field 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 uh, constructive, right? Um. Uh, so information theoretic in the in this new sense that Simon Don is developing. Um, so he, he's he's arguing for this uh, this new um, form of information or this new um, what he calls tension of information um, as as being the the property of of being able to structure a field. So could we say just riffing off of what sixty one is saying that could we say that it, that traditional information theory is somehow field presumptive and that's maybe it's one of its limitations. Well, I think uh, the, the the language of like what field field tensors or is that what the I, what was the the Simundan's, uh was it, it was tension or ten, is that related to the tensor? Um, I don't think he he's referring specifically to uh, tensors um, as used in in like relativity or something like that. Um, 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 but uh, um, I think the the notion has to do with. Um, um, an electrical field which has um, um, a potential energy and a, a tension. Um, so there's two quantities associated with the field. Um, and um, um, so he argues in the same way that, that we have to understand uh, information as having two distinct qual quantities. Um, um, or uh, he also calls it a, a qualitative dimension. Um, um, as opposed to a, a purely quantitative dimension in, in terms of information theory of the, the quantity of information. Um, uh, and so this is why, so um, I guess maybe to explain a little bit more, um, the, the issue is that um, the, uh, the transmission of information has to do with uncertainty. Um, and so the more, um, the more uh, uncertainty there is um, regarding the state of the emitter, the more information is transmitted, and the more um, the more there's a, a, a shared um, uh, the more it's shared between the emitter and transmit and uh, receiver, the less information is transmitted. Um, and so, on this conception um, of information theory uh, or of the transmission of information. Um, 
if the receiver and the um, and the emitter uh, come to coincide, um, if, if they share the same form, then there's no information transmitted, or it's not possible to transmit information. Um, and that's the it's the the lowest state of information transmission. Um, and Simon Don um, argues that we need a, an alternate notion of information to make sense of the the way that um, the gestalt psychological forms or, or forms in that sense are transmitted um, from one uh, one subject to another or one uh, um, technological entity to another. Um, so we have to have some sort of sense in which um, the transmission of a form would be the most information transmission rather than the least information transmission. Um, and uh, and this is where, where he introduces this notion of the tension of information. So this would be the capacity to structure a, a field. Um, and this is something that would be especially characteristic of uh, these gestalt um, forms. Hmm. Well, I very much like um, your exposition on that and giving shape to it. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, and maybe I missed it, it was discussed uh, or mentioned earlier about these gestalt forms? Or is that uh, what we're setting out to try to uh, to try to theorize what the gestalt forms? Um, we did talk about it a little bit earlier. Um, if you scroll up a little bit in the chat, you see um, uh, uh, a little diagram with um, uh, a triangle and uh, three black circles um, with uh, little pieces cut out of them. And uh, so that's an instance of um, the way that the Gestalt forms uh, structure perception. Um, so because um, because of uh, the way that our our perceptual apparatus is structured, we perceive um, we, the, we, all of our perception has the the figure ground distinction sort of built into it, and so we perceive a white triangle over top of a uh, um, a black outline triangle and three circles, uh, even though there's no white triangle drawn on the page, um, and. Uh, so these some of these optical illusions are um, instances of that where we can uh, sort of draw out these forms uh, that are um, inherent in our perceptual capacity, um, and uh, um, the, the the sort of principle is that the form is, precedes the elements that make it up. Uh, so rather than um, having these elements that are then composed to, to make up forms. We have forms that uh, take on uh, these different elements um, or that take, take on, uh, that appear in perception. Also, he mentions, uh, the, and when he talks about gestalt in, in his paper, he talks about the gestalt still still retains the GANS height. And uh, this is loosely kind of like the, the total the total aspect of the gestalt. Um, so it's it's the idea is in like if you have an opt I always reduce this to optical illusions because I have a phenomenal phenomenological bias in this but if you can imagine two different um, like a multi-stable um, two different two different stable states so you'd have a you would have a, an image which you can you can have there are two different stable interpretive states like you look at it one way and it's like a triangle and you look at it another way and it's like a bunch of lines or 
you know, the rabbit and the duck, you know, the rabbit and the duck are both these stable states of perceptive uh, uh, equilibrium. But uh, Simondon is saying that um, there is also this total that that there is a stability um, of the the that those two things are all, are just parts of. I mean, here here I might be slightly um, off of my interpretive framework, but it seems like uh, he he's establishing a kind of like part whole contiguity, contiguity so that we can't just separate two different stable. Um, equilibriums of interpretation or two different stable, um, I guess, uh, state uh, m- manifestations of potential, I guess would be more more general way to put it. Um, but there has to be the idea of the, the gestalt totality. And this, this is common. And when people talk about gestalt, um, they're not just saying that there's like a multiplicity of different interpretive positions uh, or... Um, uh, there's m- multiple different, um, I guess, actu- actualizations. I guess if I'm not, I'm not sure exactly the, the non-phenomenological way to talk about it, but um, but I think that the gestalt, uh, the gestalt totality, is saying that there there is a collection of different interpretations that nonetheless constitutes one singular object. So um, I don't know if a, a non-manifest if you wanted to talk about the Gansite, the way he uses it in his paper in relation to like the totality and the gestalt. Um, yeah, I mean, I can um, just sort of briefly, I mean, I'm, I'm not really uh, that well-versed in Gestalt psychology. Um, I probably mostly know about it from Simon Dong, actually. Um, but uh, Ganzheit uh, means wholeness, um, like Gans is a, is a whole. Um, and uh, um, um, so the idea is that um, these forms that... Um, the forms that Gestalt psychology has to do with um, have this property of wholeness in the sense that the whole precedes the parts that make it up. Um, so there's no, uh, rather than building up the the whole out of the parts, the the whole is, is primary um, and the parts just sort of fill in that whole. Okay, that seems like it might be, uh, well, am I- for me, it's posing a little bit of a conflict with the I- idea of the the field um, that I think, uh, in trying to develop an understanding of, of what was talked about when regards to the field, that it was a kind of ground in which um, potentialities and improbabilities of um, signals uh, or other emerging properties can be recognized by both the the emitter and the sender. So I don't know if there's um, a kind of boundary or asymptotic limit to the field uh, that would probably allow for the 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 wholeness but it seems like there may be a slight um conflict in conceptions if where the field doesn't have like a uh, a boundary or limit to its wholeness it's just 
Yeah, so the the wholeness um, is a or ganzheit is a, a property of the form, um, not of the fields. So the fields um, um, is not sort of is not presented as as having a, a limit. It I guess would just be a sort of an indefinite. Um, um, but it, um, the 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 forms um, um, have this property of being able to structure a field. Um, and and so the the field would would take on uh, the form, um, so it's it's the forms that have the property of of wholeness, not the field. Okay, yeah, because I'm trying to translate this in my mind uh, to deal with like natural language aspects of natural language, and which I think they they will talk about towards the end of the. Um, the panel discussion there, uh, I noticed that. But yeah. uh, so, in terms of translating this, this images, because it seems like the ambiguity that's built into the Gestalt uh, is what I'm trying to um, formulate here of how that uh, may have an analog in language, where you have, let's say, a, a word embedding or a syntactic embedding chunk of various words that may have um, more than one interpretation and what constrains that. Because I think that there's a lot of sort of uh, physics or engineering um, uh, vocabulary that's being used to talk about um, certain constraints on information uh, to be able to deal with uh, the noise part of the signals. So it's interesting. I'm just yeah. not sure yet how to um, uh, reconcile the tra the transfer from the, the visual field to the language field just yet. You know, um, it actually um, has a has an article about about this, this that might be, but um, are you interested in like the natural language processing kind of implications of like the multi-stable? Uh, yeah, yes. I think that um, in terms of, this might be cashed out in terms of like um, interpretations and uh, kind of a hermeneutics, I guess, more generally, uh, that, um, that the kind of questions in natural language processing about like interpretability um, invoke a certain totality that has embedded stable equilibri equilibriums of interpretive um, uh, that are, of interpretation and that was, I always leave an extra word at the end that I don't use um, so so that like for instance if you use one one word or if your algorithm puts out one word um, there may be two two different interpretive frameworks that make sense for that or if, if your natural language process is inputting one term, um, it could say, take that and take that term as uh, linearly corresponded to something or, you know, using a predictive model, it could try to figure out what was going on there. Or, uh, but, but there is a sense in which, like, if, if that is geared towards like a linear interpretation, so like you could say, um, find the most likely interpretation of this word or something like that, right, then this would be... Um, aiming for a singular stable equilibrium state of interpretation. Whereas if you were to say, find 
certain a sequence of you know or a, um, a collection of viable equilibrium states of interpretive clarity so there would be multiple interpretive um, angles which you could say well you know if you look at it in this sense th the meaning of these words could be x y or z and if you look at it in this sense the meaning of these words could be m n and o and then you could see these both as potentially stable interpretive states and you could kind of uh, derive from this kind of foundational a foundational totality that they both both these interpretations are part of like a single fundamental interpretation that is some that is kind of the the linear kind of the most that would answer the question like what would be the most um, adequate translation or uh, interpretation of this this sentence you know if you're gonna uh, translate one string into another sequence of strings so um, that I guess uh, you don't know I, I I think that um, yeah, I'm not used to talking the, about think, it but I'm trying my I hardest the, uh, I think you're on the right track to certain extent but in terms of comparing it to the visual field um, I was thinking like with these gestalt images like the duck and the and the rabbit I feel like um, there could be an experimental case where as the um, the object is being viewed and the uh, viewer moves his position in, in the particular space or field then then um, then the gestalt is either constrained in, a, in one direction or the other where it's like so there's all this stuff that's going on in the in the field of vision um, uh, with with light and mm -hmm. coordinates that uh, will then morph into one of the the two images and um, I think with language too there is the question around space I mean uh, as as a field in order to extract the communicative aspect, in this case, the meaning. Um, but it's pretty complicated. The dimension of that space is complicated. And um, so I think in many ways you're pointing to the, the embedding idea in terms of the linearity and, and um, distances within the space of what's called word, word embeddings, which is the vectorization of um, particular words. But language has other, uh, has, you know, increasing complexity as, the, as it becomes compositional. And though it has like a linear form, at least in English for the most part, and as far as sound synthesis goes one can model it as linear it is uh, um, these other abstractional layers that then get activated in the space you know like the meaning and then and then things uh, in the space itself various particles or packets are having an influence on either one word or a concatenation of two words or a concatenation of three words and that gives it its composition and though it's it's like a linear string but 
at the same time, it's kind of moving through the space around various other packets which are either constrained by the, the system, in this case the human being, on either side, sender or receiver, uh, has a program of, uh, of language, a very complex program, that it is constantly um, configuring both the string and then all the particles around the string. Yeah, I think um, we uh, we've noticed in uh, when we were reading the technology book uh, the on the mode of existence of technical objects. Um, we noticed in that book that um, it's there's kind of a noteworthy absence of language as a, a topic of discussion. Uh, so Simon Don doesn't really talk much about language. Um, there is a, a sort of in passing mention in the actual text of uh, form information and potentials that we don't have here. Um, and uh, I think you mentioned there's some discussion in the the, the discussion section. Um, but um, yeah, the so language is not really one of the uh, sort of themes that Simon Don uh, develops uh, in his work. Um, it's not it's not one of his sort of main areas of, of discussion. Um, but it, it would be interesting to try to um, extend some of his concepts into um, the linguistic sphere and, and see how they apply. Right. Well, I mean, both of these spheres, spheres are relevant to the, the work now that's being done um, in terms of the techniques, uh, you know, computational techniques, AI, however we want to describe it. I mean, the visual field and the, and the field of language, which isn't necessarily just natural language. So I think even though he might not be taking on natural language, he is talking about um, kind of the, the physics having a particular processes, which on an abstract layer do have a um, something akin to a language in the, in the formal sense. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so there's a lot of translation that can be done. By that I mean on the abstract layer of. Do you guys understand what I'm talking about? Not translating the yeah. concept across field. I think I think uh, I understand kind of like the area that you're talking about. <clears throat> Even if I can't track exactly every every word, but I'm I mostly um, I want to kind of think of this as like a um, a potential benefit of Simone and, and learning about this is that it can be applied in areas outside of where he, he was originally interested in applying it. Um, in the sense, uh, for instance, considering um, language as an object, uh, something that like a, a contemporary philosophy of language is sometimes interested in doing, like the Platonist linguistic, linguistics school of uh, Gerald Katz, for instance, who Worked with Fodor and Chomsky in the in the in the mid mid twentieth century. Um, he has the idea of language as an abstract object, and if you have the idea of language as an abstract object, then I think that's very amenable to considering it to be an object of of technical form. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I think I don't I don't think that this is at all at all different than what Simondon would have 
would have found to be warranted by his project. I think that that expanding um, our our philosophy of technology arguments into, into the domain of philosophy of language is something which is very um, underutilized as a strategy. Okay. Yeah, well, I definitely am in agreement with you. The, the study of language as an object is kind of what uh, the science of linguistics post-1950s was all about. And uh, Shannon's work was influential. Uh, Fodor took it on in terms of uh, understanding um, the idea of semantics as information uh, that has kind of a packet possibility of the the packet form of information, which, uh, you know, was was utilized in terms of the internet and the, the way there's a header on a packet, so there's an encapsulation of information, and uh, all these have kind of interesting theoretical implications uh, for natural language as well, and that some of them may have come from linguistics as well in certain ways um, and there is like a, a few experimental theoreticians out there that talk about like the supra linguistic field where generalized principles from the study of language may have an influence on uh, other sciences oh yeah certainly I think I think there's also um, a turning turning tide in uh, in contemporary epistemology as well, um, about being less focused on uh, knowledge and more focused on information. Um, I guess you could see the Hintika's Socratic epistemology book as kind of continuing in this type of project. But there's a, there's a lot of, I mean, it's very popular nowadays to be kind of def somewhat deflationary about knowledge centrism, I, I guess I would call it in epistemology. And I think that part of that knowledge centrism is kind of this this idea of uh, language as this this propositional form, which which has uh, there's specific rules. So it's kind of this there's this implicit um, propositional aspect to knowledge claims that is very very common in epistemology. And I think that leading away from that is a kind of way to naturalize um, philosophy of language, uh, um, naturalize epistemology, I guess even uh, to be yeah. like Quinian about it. Uh, on and I don't know if this is in parallel too, or and we're going off topic here, but I just the last point is that there has been a, the major disruption though in um, language studies uh, based on um, neural network, yeah, perceptrons and stuff like that, that has very much um, contested and challenged modern linguistics in many ways. And, and now there is, more recently, it turned back to having a symbolic layer on top of the perceptron layer for the, uh, to, to try to attempt at, at improving the real-world knowledge of some of these artificial systems. So it's an ongoing um, effort. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Then the naturalists and naturalists uh, tendency is very, very strong and continues to be so. And the project of of, of resorting to what best sci scientists have said about X, Y, and Z as a kind of to form our bearing in, in a particular 
area of inquiry, I think leads us to information theory constraints and taking the types of things Simone is saying here seriously. Shall we read the next paragraph? Yes, please. Uh, yeah, I was just about to say, um, you know, this is interesting, but I, I do think we should um, return to the, the text um, and we can go on to the next paragraph. Um, so maybe you can read the, the question and answer. Yeah, I was going to say, are we going to pick out roles and we can read? I, if so, I, I, get, I call record. I want to I do the record part. <laughs> well, I think we decided it would be, or I decided by, by be it, that um, the, uh, probably the easiest way is just to read one question and answer together um, rather than having people um, sort of act out the parts. But I don't know, maybe if everyone is really in, into uh, the dramatization version of it, we could do that instead. I don't know. I like to pretend I'm a French philosopher. It is my thing. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't. I don't feel very strongly about it though. Either way. Nor do I. Despite having suggested it at the start. Okay. Let's let's just read uh, one. Let's get one person to read the the question and answer. I think it's probably the the easiest way to do it. Hello. I thank Mr. Simondon very much for his very rich and very original presentation. And so that the audience has time to ask questions, I open the discussion immediately, abbreviating my thanks and congratulations, which are nonetheless very sincere. I, I really admire Mr. Simondon's construction. I would like to ask a question. Isn't the psychosocial field about to arrive at a unitary theory? This might seem paradoxical compared to the current state of physical theories and the efforts of their authors to build a cosmic unitary theory. It could go far, who knows, by leading us perhaps to predict that in the next five centuries in such a galaxy, novae or supernova will be formed. It is true that, more modestly, the unitary effort may be limited to seeking among 30 or so physical constants relations which could make it possible to extract numerically from a small number of them, something that is still difficult. To appreciate such a difficulty, it is good to compare the cosmic theme to a more down-to-earth theme by simply studying the movement of water in various conditions. There we find that there is no unitary theory given the existence of unstable regimes excluding all determinism. On the contrary, the existence of more normal regimes introduces cases governed by determinism. So it's not possible to arrive at a unitary hydrodynamic theory. On the other hand, in the psychosocial field, your presentation gives an attractive basis to perspectives of unitary theory. I would add that you spoke of a tension that sometimes put us puts us in social evolution on the brink of a hard blow, yet avoided in the end. Now, this fact, a curious thing, has found itself in the study of the formal system of logic. We have seen it blossomed from Hilbert, hoping to escape numerous paradoxes. Then, following the work of Jean Ledea Louvain in the internal limitations of formalism, we see this, starting from a paradox such as Richard's. The attempt of reasoning that determines it can become the setting in the course of a correct reasoning leading to a theorem of internal limitation of the formalism. And so finally, what would bring us to a logical impasse becomes a precise theorem deduced from the formal system and which reviews an obstacle. We can give as an example of Gödel's theorem. 
Having had the impression of rubbing a precipice, one is finally brought back to results to quite normal. Am I reading someone down too? I can take over if you'd like. Could it be said in this case that the fact for a logical theory of arriving at a system of supersaturated axioms indicates a possibility of discovery, change of axiomatic, but with positive discovery? That is what would emerge from the logical implication. Um, should I just do both? We should do it back and forth. Someone should do that in a different voice just for, to prevent confusion. I'll go. Sure, we can we can do that. Unless someone else would like to read the other, uh, Mr. Blika. I can. Can you hear me? Yes, you're good. 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 Go. Okay. Uh, this is a question whose wording would call for a minute discussion, since the interpretation of the limitation theorems is not easy. Logic and sociology present us with, besides the point mentioned earlier, very different domain. Yes, I understand. As for the second point, there might perhaps be an explanatory reason for what you said in this difference between the future of physics and the future of the human sciences seeking to be a human science. It is that we have a unity in the domain of man coming from what he is as a species, whereas in the physical realm, we do not have this specific limitation. There may be several domains and not just one field. Um, yeah, so let's, let's stop there for... Uh a minute um, and we'll just sort of go over what the discussion up to this point has uh, has talked about um so a little bit it's a little bit difficult to um or it makes things harder to follow the because we don't have the text itself we just have the summary and then the discussion um but in the text simon don um and as he uh, just sort of briefly alludes to in the summary uh simon don um uh compares um, the human sciences um, with uh, natural science um, and um, the way that natural science seems to become more and more unified um, uh, over the course of the 19th century into the 20th century um, and whereas the human sciences uh, are, are split up into multiple different sciences and, and in particular he points to psychology, sociology and psychosociology or socio-psychology, whichever way he puts it. Um, um, and uh, he, so he, the, the purpose of the paper, uh, as he puts it, is to um, try to develop this axiomatics that would allow for a unified human science um, in the same way that we have a unified natural science. Um, and then so this intervention from uh, Bouligan, he, um, he, I, I think, is sort of problematizing this idea of a unity of natural science, um, um, and he uh, he he suggests that physical theory is maybe not quite as unified as as Simon Don has um, has uh, presented it in in the paper, um, and uh, he also um, he he also points to um, certain mathematical uh, paradoxes and uh, limitation theorems um, that uh, uh, you know in the early 20th century were were developed, um, which uh, sort of put a, a, a limit to some of the ideas of the previous generation about um, the the unification of mathematics and and um, and of logic. Um, 
so he's he's I think pushing back a little bit on uh, on Simon Don's idea of a, a unity of natural science, and he suggests that um, um, maybe it's actually there's actually more unification in the human sciences or or the human field than there is in natural science. Yeah, I think that's the crucial point in that last paragraph. Although um, it is it is kind of difficult to parse the grammar the grammar as translated here. But when he when it, he says in this difference between the future of physics and the future of the human sciences seeking to be a human science, I think what the way that I've kind of grammatically interpreted interpreted this is that it's the the uh, unity the the um, the additive synthesis, the synthesis of the future of physics and the future of human sciences that is seeking to be a human science. Is that y'all's interpretation? Um, I think instead, I'm just looking at the French text now. Um, so one point that's not translated is that, um, so he says one human science with emphasis. Um, so he says, um, uh, yes, I understand. As for the second point, uh, there might be an explicative reason to what you said um, with this difference between the, the becoming of physics and the becoming of human sciences seeking to be one human science. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. Sorry, that's just my translation on the fly. Um, but uh, yeah, so one is, uh, is in italics. It's uh, emphasized there. So it should be translated in English as a single human science or something, a, a unitary human science, more just one human science rather than just to be a human science, to just for emphasis, I guess. But I think I, I think after a couple of readings of it, I gathered what he was saying, that it was there's this becoming of physics and the becoming of the human sciences, and he sees them united in a unitary human science. Um, I don't think he I don't think he sees the becoming of physics and of human sciences together um, in one human science. Um, what he what he's talking about is so he, he talks about the, the difference uh, between the future of physics. Um, um, uh, so he, he thinks that the future of physics um, involves this uh, this unification, uh, and then the future of human sciences um, uh, is is still seeking to be a, a human science, a single human science, or or a one uni uh, one unified human science. Um, so oh, he, he okay. the difference between the two here. So I guess it would be more like the difference between, on one side, the future, the becoming of physics, and the other side, the nascent uh, becoming of the human sciences that is still seeking to be a human science, but isn't really there yet, or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a good uh, paraphrase of, of what he's getting across. Is that, that, was the, that was kind of like the alternate interpretive model. It was either that one of those two that, that could have been implied by the grammar. I thought that was slightly ambiguous, but I don't want to, I don't want to, um, go off, off too much on that. Right. Um, but he, so he does, so he, he, um, sort of specifies that in the, the, so he, he accepts the idea or he, he doesn't push back on Bouligan's, um, uh, claim that physics is not as unified as, as Simon Dahl had presented it in his paper. Um, 
but he suggests that in uh, the realm of human science, the, the um, uh, requirement for unity is different than in physics or in natural science in general, um, because the, the human domain is, uh, is unified in itself. So there's a, a sort of need for a unification of human science insofar as the human domain is unified. Um, whereas in the physical realm, there's, um, so he says there may be several domains and not just one field. So it's, uh, there, there's no, uh, sort of objective unification in the physical realm that re would require that our theoretical, um, uh, uh, reflection of that realm should also be unified. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, uh, should, should we move on, I guess, or does anyone else have any questions in those sections? Yeah, I think we can go on to the next um, set of uh, um, back and forth. I can read. Um, Mr. Pierre-Maxime Schul. Uh, I think that the direction in which Mr. Simondon pursues his research is one of the most interesting and fruitful of those which, contempt, which can tempt philosophers today. I think they have a lot of interest in thinking not only about the notions of gestalt and the problems of cybernetics, but also experiences like Stephen Wolfe's and about the notion of critical point and change of state in crystallography, and also on the notion of field to which Emile Breye attached so much importance in the last lines he wrote. What I would fear in such an effort is that sometimes, instead of leading to a useful transposition, we remain on the plane of metaphysics. There is a great danger. On the other hand, as far as the interpretation of the Platonic idea is concerned, we must be careful not to be fooled by the often mythical form of Plato's exposition. It appears much closer to our concerns and those of even Mr. Simondon in certain passages of the uh, Philebus. Uh, for example, to see what he says about the relationship between the limit and the unlimited, Taylor has been able to relate some mathematical methods of approximation by excess or by default. Perhaps even a certain combination of ideas would not be inconceivable. Mr. Simondon responds, to me, what seems not to be present in Plato's doctrine is the notion of potential energy, potential in a general way, and perhaps there is some contempt, a lack of knowledge about origins of becoming. Is it possible to make a theory of man without considering him as a being, not only who becomes, who is born and who dies, who is degraded, but like a being of which part of the essence is to become, that is, a being towards something? It is especially the notion of tendency that is missing. While searching well in the Philebus, one could find texts that allude to a becoming that leads to being. Genesis Ice Uisan. Usian. Yeah, there's a couple there's a couple little points of translation that I don't really like. So the when they say experiences, it should be experiments. Um, it's, it's the same word in French, but uh, experiment is a better translation there. Um, How the is experiment ex and experience the same word in French? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, just that's so fascinating. Yes. It's just one of those weird terms that's that both means both of those things. Yeah, so it's experience for both, but uh, in this in this context, experiment is a better translation. So he he talks about the experiments of uh, Etienne Bob. Um I'm not sure. I don't. I'm not familiar with with both. I'm not sure what exactly those experiments were. Um, that would be something we could try to look up, I guess. Um. um and then uh, what does he go on? Yeah, he talks about um, 
crystallography, and then uh, Emile Breillet um, was an a, a early 20th century philosopher of science, um, French philosopher of science. Um, I don't know much about him, but uh, um, yeah, so he, so Schul, his um, uh, intervention, I guess, is that he um, um, he's worried that uh, um, Simondon might be staying at the the level of metaphysics um, um, rather than um, sort of um, sort of bringing the uh, the conceptual. Um, uh, content of these scientific developments into philosophy. Uh, he thinks that Simondon is maybe staying at the level of metaphysics, and um, and I think the second objection or or consideration is um, uh, related to that because he he thinks that Simondon might have been um, uh, sort of fooled by these. Um, um, mythical presentations of the doctrine of the ideas in in Plato and uh, um, that uh, the Philebus is a, a better guide to the doctrine of ideas than um, some of the texts that Simondon was relying on. Just jump in and mention that you you mentioned just read in passing uh, non Etienne Wolf, not Stephen Wolf. It's actually printed Stephen Wolf in my copy, so that's another. That's a pretty bad. Oh thing. yeah, that's what I was thinking. Who who is the person you're talking about with these experiments? Because it says Stephen Wolf here. <laughs> it's very odd. Very odd. Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was looking at the French text and it said Etienne Wolf. So um, yeah, that's uh, very strange that they would change the name. Um, yeah, I I'm just trying to remember um, that text itself. But uh, um, um, I think the idea is that um, he, so he points to, uh, in that second um, response there, he points to um, what he thinks that Simondon um, should have drawn from Plato, which is this notion of the, uh, the, the genesis of, of beings, um, uh, genesis et soucian, um, um, and uh, um, he thinks that what Simondon is um, uh, looking to add to Plato is already in Plato. I think that's the, the sort of uh, uh, general thesis that he's uh, objecting. I suppose, I, I suppose we should move on because uh, I, I, if we get each, each one of these people, especially if this strange translation is going to have uh, um, their, own, their own difficulties in understanding they're they're getting on about um so uh maybe we can just keep the momentum because we probably we only want to do this paper for two weeks right so we don't want to get this stuck so we're reading it for the next like two months <laughs> yeah i think we can go on to the next uh, back and forth um so we have jean val and uh, uh going back and forth a couple of times with simon don Ooh, i can do the vol part i like Jean val uh, the reflection that I could make would go in the same direction as that of Mr. Schul. That is to say that I would al will allow myself to recall the role of becoming in the philobus, to which Mr. Schul referred, because there is the idea of the essences of becoming, the idea of a gegenemine, I cannot pronounce that word, uisa, uisia, uisia, I, cannot, I can't pronounce that one either, although I should be able to. That is to say something called a generation towards essence. 
Now you are right, it is not to a man that Plato attributed the tendency to essence. But in the end, the greatest critic of the theory of ideas is Plato, at least the idea as an archetype. It was Plato who asked the most questions about the idea. I greatly admired your books and your presentation, but in a similar way to the one outlined earlier, I wonder whether there's not a danger of transposition into something that is verbal. It is the danger, generally speaking, that is seen on the other side of the Atlantic that we often want to be present. Schema's interesting, but basically perhaps the concrete would have been more interesting. I wonder whether in the idea of good form, there is not a myth. First, one can only know the good form once it has been the right form, that is after the fact. Besides, for these pre-revolutionary states too, it is very difficult to study them at that moment because we have something else to do. Then we will study them only afterwards. They will be interpreted in a different way. I do not know what relationship you will put between them and the good form and the bad form. It is very difficult. I see there a kind of danger in the very idea of a good form, of good form. Basically, it is the idea of the philobus, moreover, a platonic idea, but which perhaps requires a discussion. What good, what does the word good mean in the idea of good form with a gestaltist at first and then for you? <laughs> then, hmm. Yeah, this is, this is, this is really interesting. It's a, um, He's, his critique here is about uh, the idea of that that gestalt unity, that the gestalt totality being a post hoc kind of justification, and a lot of the the reasonings for making these types of post hoc justifications, um, kind of uh, characterizing them in kind of a prima facie way. But I suspect that Simondon will be will be drawing this back from from the gestaltists here. Does someone want to read Simondon's uh, response? I can do it. We can do a, sure. a back and forth. Uh, so Simondon responds. He says, oh, sorry, I'm looking at the French one. Um, Simondon says, I did not adopt the, the notion of good form. Oh, no, no, you first criticized it. And Simondon replies, I presented it by attributing it to the Gestaltists. I said we could not speak of a good form because this good form would be too totalitarian. My intention was precisely to bring a critique of the notion of good form. There is too much optimism in the notion of good form. It is too Leibnizian to a certain extent. I wanted to say that there was always risk and danger, that the possible remained open. And if I spoke about pre-revolutionary times, it is because attention can engender the best as the worst. It is a questioning. To a certain extent, then, it is a dramatic theory of the beginning of being that I wanted to present. It is not at all an optimistic theory like that found among the Gestaltists, where everything is for the best in the best of fields, to paraphrase an expression that would be precisely that of Leibniz. The good form is perfect and it is good for everyone. It, it is good in every way and for all things. And that I do not believe. And there can be competition between different forms, just as an intervening crystalline germ can crystallize a metastable field in one way or another. And there may be several species of crystalline germs capable of bringing about crystallization. It all depends on which one falls and there exists a phenomenon of chance. In the same way, the form that arises from a tenth state is not ne necessarily the best possible and we never know which one would be the best possible. Okay, can I say something? Can you sure. hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. So this last paragraph actually makes me think of the situation with the vaccine that's currently happening or is in progress, uh, especially around uh, the notion around intervening crystalline germ can crystallize a metastable field in one way or another. Um, and this this whole rebuttal or 
it just makes me think about the process um, that science may have for these companies that are doing this bioengineering and molecular engineering. The, the types of processes, very intense, cutting-edge scientific processes, um, but that are, are still risky where we don't know exactly um, what the fall would be. It all depends on which one falls, and there exists a phenomenon of chance. In the same way, the form that arises from a tense state is necessarily the best possible. And we never know which one would be the best possible. Um, so, it makes me think a lot about empirical methodologies and think that uh, this Mr. Wall, uh, I mean, Jean Wall, may have a <clears throat> kind of... Uh, um, ignored the idea of the emergence uh, towards the good form and that um, various nuances and methodologies are still a process of experimenting until they have the good form and then, the, then there's a multiplicity of that or a plurality of good forms. Um, and yeah, so I was just thinking about the the optimization or or the fact that uh, empirical methodologies are have kind of evolved to more optimum ways of of uh, doing what I think Simon Don is referring to. Ah, well, here, here, I think, I think your your example set is extremely relevant here because we have this idea of a vaccine as kind of a ad hoc good form, right? The vaccine is the the concern here is that there would be like a totalizing function, right? This is the the fear the fear of these totalizing ways of thinking, in which we will want want to take a vaccine because it it is good to take the vaccine rather than not take it. And yeah, in so doing, in terms of the perspective of the scientists that are developing the vaccine, they there's a there is a demand, obviously. Uh, but apart from that, the way that they go about, um, you know, formulating and committing to the creation of a vaccine, I think is a is less totalitarian than. Um, Maybe the politics around the vaccine, right? But I think I think Walt Vol, uh, Jean Vall here, um, his worry is is manifest in your worry here, so to speak. Uh, that um, that he's worried about the the idea of that that um, Gestalt totality could kind of um, subvert the more complex, multi kind of functional uh, framework. Uh, which it would be the one that you were mentioning of the various different research projects and the different viabilities of different vaccines and different methods and models. Um, and so Simone, Simone Doan is quick to retort that, no, in fact, he, he does not insist on this good, good form. This is not, that is, he, that his writing is in sense a critique of this, this totalizing function. Um, and 
rather, and I think that this is definitely the case from what our readings were previously on, on Simonton, that um, he has his, his theory of kind of con concretization leaves, uh, leaves a certain, the, the, the linearity of function, an open question, uh, so that um, different, different um, recontextualizations are possible. So there's a certain kind of freedom involved in that that wouldn't be necessarily free within just the, uh, the Gestalt totality, right? So he wants to kind of make sure that there is this consideration in due course of the, the kind of more broad domain of, of functional uh, explanation. So what, what function is, he doesn't want to think, oh, it's like a stimulus response, like this functions for that. And we have the good form. I think he points back towards this. Um, I, I forget the exact term. So I'm uh, maybe here, non-manifest, you want to take over for me for, me for a second? Because I think I forgot the terms about this more Simonden related, uh, what is it, functional something? I'm uh, not sure precisely what term you're you're thinking of there, but um, so the notion of concretization um, that he develops in uh, on the mode of technical on the mode of existence of technical objects. Um, so it has to do with the way in which functions are integrated together. So in a an abstract technical object, um, the uh, each component has a single function, and uh, there's a um, a sort of one-to-one -one mapping of components to functions and and uh then in the process of concretization so as as the technical object becomes more concrete in the, the technical lineage um then each component um contributes more than one function um so all of the different operations of that component uh, are integrated into the functioning of the technical object as a whole um yeah, and I so, think yeah. That, that kind of describes a lot around these sort of protein modeling, things of that nature that, that happen now. That's uh, something that I know next to nothing about, so uh, I can't really um, comment on that, but it would be interesting to, uh, to um, try to apply the, the, notion, of, the notion of concretization to um, um, bio, biotechnology, um, because uh, that was a field that... Um, didn't really exist at the time Simon Don was writing, so that would be another interesting extension of his work. Um, of course, we had the medical tradition, and that was, I guess that's that's what stood in for biotechnology at the time. Yeah, I mean, of course, there were. If you take technology in a, a broader sense, you can even talk about you know animal breeding and and plant breeding and so on as a kind of biotechnology, of course. Um, but uh, you know, referring specifically to um, molecular biology, um, uh, I think, was sort of just developing at the time that Simon Don was writing. So there was no, um, uh, it, it didn't exist as an industrial field in the way that it, it does today. When did this uh, panel take place, do you know? Was it the 1950s? Uh, 1956, I think. Let me just check. I think it was 1960 from the PDF. Uh, yes, yeah, it's 1960. That's right. All right. So that's an interesting um, question around 
um, where it was situated in terms of the empirical sciences that were happening or happening around them. I mean, it seems that the focus in terms of natural science is physics, but even in the uh, late 50s and 60s, there was still biophysics going on then. Yeah, yeah. I think, And then, of course, there were vaccines at that time as well, which would be the, the kind of crucial relevant historical continuity uh, that would be related to the, your example set. And I think I think it is it is good to think, let's conceive of vaccines as a technical object and organize our understanding of them in the way that Simone Din would talk about technical objects in relation to concretion and the kind of um, the integ- integ- functional integration problem. Um, and and I think I think this is uh, I guess uh, I wish you had been uh, with us for like the last few months, Aeon, because then you would be like you would have this like you would have it exact and know exactly what was going on. But but for Simondon, he he wants to he wants to give a kind of independence to the evolution of the technical object, um, so that it um, it the, the the functions which we conceive of of it playing playing a role uh, related to. Are not the ones that not necessarily the functions which will will end up constituting the technical object in its more evolved form. So it's a kind of independent uh, an independence theory of technical evolution. Um, yeah. So I think we can go on to the next uh, set of uh, back and forth with um, Gabriel Marcel. Um, I can read that the Marcel. I completely agree with Shul and Jean Val. The question I'm asking is this. It seems to me that you cannot escape the reproach of those who accuse you of falling, falling into the metaphor if you really start from an ontology in the most precise sense of the word, that is, a theory of the elements of being. It seems to me that if you do not posit a kind of substructure ontological in the most precise sense of the word, then we can always tell you, tell you that you are making simple comparisons that may be misleading. But then there I will evoke a philosophy that I know extremely badly and which is never again considered. But it seems to me that the problem has been posed quite similarly to yours in a, in a Herbartian philosophy. And I would like to know if there's anyone here who knows enough about Herbart's thinking to see how close this relationship is. It seems to me that there is precisely a dynamic, a dynamic of the elements of being in a dynamic, which in certain sense is of platonic origin. Should I keep going? Just read the response. Sure. Uh, Simone Din, I do not know the thought of Herbart. As for the reproach which consists in saying that I do not begin with a study of being, I believe that this is impossible. And I tried at the beginning to say to say it. In fact, when we study man, we always remain at the level of correlations because there is no possible reduction of the individual being to a subset that would really be the element. There's no group of groups either. Neither the totality nor the indivisible is possible in man. An ontology in the case of man would be an anthropology, but I do not think that anthropology is possible. It is the postulate. Apparently, I uh, have an oversight. I'd never heard of this guy before, and he has a giant Stanford encyclopedia article. Yeah, I don't think he's actually that interesting, to be honest. The, the little bit that I've read of him is not is. I don't think it's an accident that he's become forgotten by history. Are you talking about Marcel or Herbart? Uh, Herbart. 
yeah, I mean, he's, he's uh, sort of known in, in educational theory, I think, um, more than in philosophy. Um, but I, I know, I don't know what his educational theory was, but in, in philosophy, he, um, or he developed um, um, a theory of uh, uh, um, differential representations. Um, uh, so um, he was connected in some respects with um, the psychophysics uh, school in the 19th century. Huh. Um, and he, uh, I mean, I guess the one sort of interesting contribution is he tried, he tried to make sense of what it would mean for there to be unconscious representations, um, um, but uh, not in a Freudian sense, but uh, just in the sense that um, there would be representations that are below the threshold of consciousness um, and uh, um, how uh, a representation can pass uh, over or under that threshold, but uh, I'm not really sure um, what um, connection um, Marcel is drawing with Herbard here because he even he says he doesn't really know him. Uh, yeah. But uh, um, yeah, so I don't know what exactly the connection that he's trying to draw is. Yeah, I think it's kind of in, in, impenetrable from the text. It is kind of like, does, does anyone know about this guy? And everyone's like, no. <laughs> but uh, I found it interesting that um, he was uh, around in Jena at around the same time that it seems like Hegel was writing phenomenology, perhaps. And Hegel, of course, is uh, is a, a very interesting kind of um, in pedagogical circles, I suppose, as well. So maybe maybe there's some some little bits there and pieces that might be interesting for maybe a historian of philosophy or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm not being very uh, uh, fair, I guess, when I say that he uh, is rightly forgotten. But um, uh, yeah, I, I would just say that, that I haven't found the from the little bits of, of what I've read of his work that doesn't seem especially interesting. But maybe there are other aspects that um, that are more interesting than what I found. There's an interesting substrate here that they, they keep alluding to, which, <clears throat> although he's not being mentioned by name and there's a reference back to Plato, um, it seems that the question around being is coming up a lot in a kind of Heideggerian sense. They're not mentioning Heidegger, but uh, supposing that the, the uh, <clears throat> that some of the controversy is around taking being into account and what what is being and and the becoming question as it relates to being and so it, it just makes me think of Heidegger and Heidegger was a big influence I think um, or at least somebody has pointed out that he may have been and had a foothold uh, in the French um, schools of philosophy during the post-war era even though there was a there's talk around a Nietzschean explosion as well, but I think Heidegger was a kind of pinnacle that, that many had to deal with in the French school. So this question around being coming up a lot here. Yeah, I, I always think of being as like the, the kind of currency of philosophy, so to speak. So... I just kind of assume that everything is all, always about being in all of my inquiry. <laughs> um, uh, I was, uh, I, I'm not sure if, um, if, uh, if there's much, if there's much that we can say about like how, how being, 
I mean, does do you think that Simone Den has a, a particular characterization of being in it, or mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what to make of this in the sense of like um, a lot of a lot of authors with with systems will will specifically talk about being like Heidegger, Hegel, etc. But I don't know if uh, if I recall Simone Den really kind of entering into that kind of model of explication. Uh, we'll see more in when we get into the individuation book. He does um, he does talk about being and ontology uh, in that book, um, basically in the uh, the introduction uh, and conclusion. Um, but um, yeah, I'm not too sure whether I mean Heidegger is definitely a, a, an important reference point for you know post World War II French philosophy. Uh, I'm not sure whether Heidegger is what they have in mind here when they talk about uh, being. Um, I, I just say that because, uh, you know, in Plato already, um, there um, uh, there's discussion of being um, and, uh, um, you know, how being and non-being are, are related and, and so on. Um, um, so I, I'm a little bit, uh, yeah, I, I think it was probably more a, a platonic reference than a Heideggerian one uh, when they talk about being here. Okay, so just in general, um, what's the sort of gravitation that they're doing towards that in questioning Simondon's position, keep kind of pulling him towards? I read it kind of as the difference between the distinction that he's, I guess we're going to lear- learn in depth between the ontological and the ontogenetic, basically, between coming up with a kind of metaphysical schema for being versus uh, sort of beginning from a postulate rather than an axiom or something like that, or kind of like beginning from from his sort of strategy of postulation rather than to sort of lay out a whole a whole system. Yeah, yeah. As it's always the um, being and becoming, I suppose, uh, even more famous pair than being and non-being, perhaps. Yeah, I think um, I think it's interesting in Simon Dole's reply here, um, where he he um, he says, "Oh, an ontology in the case of man would be an anthropology, um, but I don't think an anthropology is possible." Um, um, so he's he's distancing himself from uh, a project of um, uh, of the anthropology in, in maybe something like the Heideggerian sense uh, of a fundamental anthropology. Um, um, so he doesn't think that there is um, such a thing as an ontology of the human being, um, um, and he um, he he's distancing himself from that that project. So what he's doing is not um, uh, is not or shouldn't be understood as an ontology in that sense. Um, we're just about at two hours, but um, I'm just taking a look. Uh, we, there's more back and forth with uh, Marcel and going back and forth with Simondon. Uh, yeah, it's probably too long to finish for today. So um, maybe we should stop here um, and uh, we can pick up with the rest of what uh, their, their back and forth is next time. And then we should be able to finish the rest of the, the um, dialogue.